Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 296 with Corn Fairy's Julie Foreman. You may recall back in episode 273, we chatted with the CEO of Corn Fairy, Gary Bernison, which was a lot of fun. At this time, we are going a little bit more precise and detailed and tactical in terms of the nuts and bolts in working with the recruiter 101. So you'll learn one, pro tips for becoming more visible to recruiters. Two, the do's and don'ts with speaking with recruiters. And three, when a pay bump just isn't worth it. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F296. Now here's Julie's story. Julie Foreman is a partner with the executive search firm Corn Ferry International, where she's a member of the firm's global industrial practice and marketing center of excellence. She joined Corn Ferry following a 15-year career with GE, where she's held senior roles on both the industrial and capital sides, with her last position being the head of strategic marketing for GE in Canada. She focuses today on recruitment and leadership consulting mandates for industrial organizations going through critical inflection points that require an upscaling of strategic capabilities and or a shift in focus and transformational leadership. She is a certified Six Sigma black belt and change management coach. So thanks to Julie for spending some time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. It's a trying time that challenges all of our basic assumptions. However, one thing that brings us all together is our common humanity. Now more than ever, teams must come together and work together to solve big challenges. And Trello is here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Teams of all shapes and sizes and companies like Google, Fender, and even Costco all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. With Trello, you can work with your team wherever you are, whether it's at home or in an office. No matter what device you're using, computer, tablet, or phone, Trello syncs across all of them, so you can stay up to date on all the things your team cares about. Keep your workflow going from wherever you are with Trello. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com. Trello.com. Here is Julie. Julie, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so excited for this chat. And, and I'm curious to learn, first of all, since you've, you've hunted many heads, recruited many people, how'd you end up finding me? Well, it is uh, through the beauty of LinkedIn. I was uh, looking for some various leadership experts and your name came across and I thought you had an interesting background and uh, just sent you a, a request to connect to keep you in my network. And uh, and you had uh, started a conversation, which I uh, happily took part of. Well, yeah, it, it, it's so fun because usually LinkedIn connections just like, okay, cool. And, and then maybe they, they sit there for, for a long, long time. But, but right away, you were, were so uh, interested and engaging and, and shared some, some great tips. And uh, I'm eager to, to dig in and share them with the broad world. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Well, and I understand you're often asked, so I'll ask as well, you know, what made you leave GE where you were for, for quite a while and go on over to Corn Ferry? Well, so as a lot of uh, people in the executive search uh, business, sometimes, you know, some of them, they've grown up in the industry. Others have come from management consulting and others like me have had a 
an executive career before. And in my case, although I loved G and spent many years and had an awesome time, at one point I um, live in Montreal and uh, with the company's evolution, there just weren't any more roles that uh, that I thought would be my next step here. And uh, and so I had to take the leap of faith and, uh, and uh, follow one of my ex-colleagues who I happen to love and to sometimes know me better than I know myself and thought that this would be a perfect job for me, a perfect follow-on career. And uh, he is right. It is great. It leverages a lot of the skills that sometimes I think I, I didn't even know I had myself. So it's a lot of fun every day. And I get to work with one of my great friends. So that's an added bonus. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have great respect for Corin Farid. We had uh, we had your CEO in episode 273. And I'm excited for, for our conversation because it sounds like you have shared a lot with people in terms of kind of working with a recruiter 101. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the aspects of having had a corporate career before is, is myself when I, I, I switched careers, I didn't realize how little I knew about the industry and how invisible I actually was. And so as I go through uh, working with different people, obviously I tend to work with C-suite and above, but I love working with up-and-coming talent as well and telling them how to leverage recruiters and executive search consultant and have to think about it as you manage your career. Well, well, maybe let's start real basic from the beginning. You said recruiters and executive search consultants or headhunters. Are these terms interchangeable or... Or, or how would you orient us to the words themselves? So the industry is pretty wide, and it's one where there aren't a lot of barriers to entry. So I think one of uh, your previous guests had mentioned 16,000 executive uh, recruitment firm placement agencies. Basically, when you look at the ecosystem, there's two different models. There is the contingency model basically being paid when you place a candidate, which tends to cater to more staff-level positions. And then you have the executive search group that is a retained model, so close, more closely aligned to management consulting, where we are tasked with building specific strategies, solving talent challenges for our clients. And so you will find different firms that focus on the different types of of recruitment. Now, obviously, there is overlap, but uh, typically the more senior positions will be on the retained model. And when you say retained model, that, that's just how folks get paid, like a, a flat monthly fee for your ongoing services? Well, as you can imagine, there's a lot of different variation to that, okay. but it's, it's more like um, consulting. So, you know, when you hire a consultant and you have them redesign your whole plant, whether or not you implement those change, you still owe the consultant for the work. So it's the same way we do. It's the same thing in recruitment. There is that notion of, of upfront work. Now, obviously, we wouldn't be in the business if we didn't end up placing people. So we tend to be very successful at finding what we're looking for. But the idea is, is there. Oh, that's cool. And so maybe we'll, we'll start really basic. So why would a typical professional, maybe not yet at the executive levels, choose to use a recruiter? You know, they might say, oh, we're just putting another middleman in, in between me and, and the job. Is that helpful? And why? Well, so typically a recruitment, let's say we talk about search consultant. Right. So search consultants, they work for the client. And that's something that's very important. So often we get calls about candidates saying, well, I'm trying to work with a, a search consultant, but actually um, the model is where we're hired by a client and we will find you in a sense. All right. 
when you are more at um, earlier in your career, more of a pre- uh, professional level, then it is worth it to think about who I want to work with because at a contingency level, a lot of the value that these consultants bring is knowing the candidates and being able to present them quickly to the clients because there is that element of speed. Okay. And so then I'm thinking if I am a professional and I am getting some some inbound requests or information from a recruiter, how do I kind of know how to sift through that a little bit and, and know, oh, is this someone who it has really cool opportunities or, or not mm-hmm. as cool opportunities, or you just have to kind of, you know, get deep into the conversation to know? Mm-hmm. Well, the first mistake that I always see people make, or most people make, is that they are on a search mode only when they are actually looking for something, when they're not happy, when they want to move, when in reality, the conversation about your career should be ongoing. So when you get these calls, when you get these these opportunity to have a conversation, you should take them, have a conversation, learn what is out there, learn what these firms are working on, get a sense for what clients are looking for and candidates, and always make sure that you know the market in which you are. So knowing which firms are the ones that you definitely should strike up a conversation when they call and that you should uh, get to know. Okay. And so, and there is a nice listing and a Forbes article that uh, I'll I'll put in the show notes. Any other kind of resources you might recommend to get oriented a little bit to, you know, who are the names, uh, who are the players? And uh, you you said they'll find you, but uh, if, (laughs) if, if we want to find them, what should we do? Well, you mentioned it. So there is a list there and those lists, and I think on on the website you'll share, there is both the professional recruitment and also the executive recruitment. Most of these firms will have an area where you can upload your information so that you are on their radar. So that is something that's very important. The other part is also looking around you. So when somebody has a new role, ask them, was there any headhunter involved, any placement agency and, and try to get their feedback for the level of service and uh, whether that you felt the experience that you felt as a candidate. And that's something that's really important, using your network. But most of all, I think it's about being receptive. Sometimes people feel that if I dare to answer recruiter, I am reaching this loyalty I should have to my employer and I am, you know, will be tempted <laughs> to do something that I do not want to do. Well, that's kind of not true, right? This is just about talking about your career opportunities that may or may not appeal to you. And it's important to have those conversations. Okay. Well, well then how would one make themselves more, more findable? I understand there's, there's a LinkedIn feature that explicitly says I'm, I'm open to chatting with, with recruiters or what do you recommend? Well, LinkedIn certainly is something that a lot of people use. So making sure that you have a very professional LinkedIn profile, and there are tons of resources out there that explains how to do it. But that's certainly a number one. And not just listing the title, but really giving an idea of what you've done, what you've accomplished. Um, That's really important. That's certainly a first part. Making sure that your resume is up to date and ready. 
not just as a I'm going to make I'm going to write up my resume as a, as a, because you want to find a new job, but because you're ready to if you want to engage in something that you have it uh, ready and in, in at hand. Okay, and so you said there's a number of these LinkedIn resources. I'd love it if you could you know name one or two and maybe just a, a couple quick do's and don'ts that you see all the time. Sure. So the first one is making sure that when you describe your position or the positions you've had in your in the past, you're not generic. A lot of people, you know, they write their accomplishment or their responsibility in such a generic term that it could be anyone. And so it's important that you think about what is my value proposition? What I, I what have I done that is valuable to an employer and how can I create the, I'd say the, um, the feeling that somebody wants to call you and learn more about you, because that's what LinkedIn's all about. The other thing, make sure you have professional pictures. That's always very important. Uh, make sure that you have, if you've done any major uh, transformation, any major initiatives you worked on, things that are very relevant in your industry, make sure you highlight it in your LinkedIn profiles, because those are the things that are picked up. And never forget that LinkedIn is a keyword base search engine. So make sure that whatever keyword you would uh, see in a position spec that you would be interested in, then that it's somewhere in your resume so somebody can find it. Okay. So then it sounds like the we talk about generic versus specific and the initiatives and transformations that there could be uh, a fair bit of, of content, uh, a pretty hefty word count then on, on your LinkedIn profile. Any thoughts on you know how much is too much? Well, I mean, I think you need to put enough to be able to create the curiosity. You have to bring enough to distinguish yourself from others. Obviously, you don't want to have a five-page LinkedIn profile, but you want to put enough. Uh, Most people do not put enough. It's not clear the scope of their responsibility. It's not clear what they've done. And it's it's just not, oh, I'm going to say salesy enough, right? But I would certainly advocate to put more rather, more than less, especially if you're looking for a for a role. Okay, so maybe I don't know, just to, to frame it a little bit, like like two or three bullets or accomplishments per role, or is is that about the right amount? About two or three, where you and it's important as well to say if you're leading a team, how many people are you leading? If you have a sales responsibility, give me a scope of how much. If you have, for example, you're working in a specific uh, vertical or industry, what is that experience? If you've worked with major clients, what are the types of clients that you've worked with? If you're working in sales and you've done channels. Um, through channels, which channels do you know? Because those are those are the aspects that clients often will ask for. Oh, that's great. And I have advised many clients when it comes to, say, working on a resume, that, that numbers do really work wonders in terms of if something is significant or large. You know, What do you mean by significant or large? Can you put to millions yeah. of dollars or numbers of people? Yeah, no, exactly. Or, or uh, somebody in finance that says, on their resume, I was responsible to closing the books every month. Well, yeah, <laughs> whether they were closed properly or not, that tends to stay out. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Well, you know, and, and I think that, you know, specifically for a moment, you know, folks in, in accounting roles, I think sometimes th- those resumes are, are kind of tricky to, to showcase that some real results in terms of like, we kept things moving well and appropriately and sensibly and according to gap and nothing broke, you know, it is kind of doesn't have as much of a, 
a flash or an, an enticing element as discovered acquisition opportunity that yielded $200 million of transaction or something. It, it, so, so I'd love to get your take there. If, if that is kind of the nature of your role of responsibilities, like you, you're responsible for keeping things moving and operating and humming as opposed to generating, you know, new explosive initiatives that, that are game changing. Any, any pro tips on that? Well, I mean, you probably hurt of the feelings of a lot of accounting oh, and people I'm so out sorry, there. accountants. <laughs> I love my accountants and you have skills that I often do not. And I value your contributions, all accountants out there. I, I want to make sure these accountants are getting their, their credit, their props <laughs> in so any I way have, possible. Absolutely. I'm just kidding. But what may not sound exciting to uh, somebody that is not in finance can be very exciting to somebody in finance. I think finance is one of those areas where nobody's looking for somebody who just stamps paper or closes the books. We're always looking for people that add value, that are business partners. That's what we're looking for. Just calculating numbers and, and presenting them and making sure they add, that's just, it's not value anymore. So it really is about when you think about your role is how do I add value? How do I, what I do every day distinguishes me from somebody else? And why would somebody want to hire me and not somebody else? And if you have no answer, I would say, (laughs) change it, do something, you know, think about how you can change it up, challenge yourself to go above and beyond and find those bullets that are going to go on LinkedIn and make a recruiter say, hey, I'd love to get to know this person because they've just done what my client is really looking for. I really like that turn of phrase there, find those bullets, because that is is powerful both in terms of representing yourself to the outside world, but also the the internal representation for for promotions and performance reviews and and those kinds of things is to proactively seek them out. And in college, I was a little bit of a, I was maybe a little bit of a prestige hound in in the in the pejorative kind of interpretation of it, or a very shrewd strategic career planner in the in the kinder interpretation. Because I was, I was thinking, okay, what is this bullet going to be that is going to sound awesome to impress McKinsey or Bain or BCG? Because <laughs> I, I was, I was hungry and focused. That's what I wanted post college. No, it's it's you know managing your career is is certainly about creating those experiences that are going to impress people but more and more um managing a career isn't something that's linear we tend to before it used to be you need to impress your boss you need to impress your boss but today those people who are going to help you along and accelerate your career are all over they're everywhere they're your colleagues they are your direct reports they are everywhere so it's important that we stop seeing it as such a, you know, I need to impress my boss because that's not what cuts it anymore. Okay. I- I'm with you there. So or let's say you- you've done some smart networking, you-, you found some recruiters, or you've been found by recruiters by having an excellent LinkedIn profile that has the, the great keywords and great distinguishing accomplishments. Uh, what are some-, some key things to think about or goals to have in mind when you start having the conversations with these folks? So it's important to know what you're all about, what you like, what you want to do, what you have 
been successful at and what you want to develop. When you enter in a conversation, it's it, it that's the really important part. Too many people, they don't think about it and then they get ping on an opportunity and they just like, hey, that sounds fun. I'm just going to go there and explore it. And they really don't have the control of the conversation. So thinking about what you want to do is really important. Another thing as well is, is what you want in your career, what you want in life. You know, often you, every so often you hear these conversation on, you know, you should not have your email during the weekend, you know, at six, close everything down. But the reality is some jobs, you cannot do that. Whatever people say, I can guarantee you that does not exist. It doesn't mean that you should do it. It means that if that's a value, a preference that you have, then maybe those jobs aren't for you and you should look elsewhere and you could be successful doing something else. But understanding who you are and what you like is something that's really, really important to find a career success that you want. I think that's a really good point there. It's not just having a clear understanding of what you want, but also what you don't want. And mm-hmm. you know, I have had some conversations with guests about establishing boundaries and, and that can take you so far. But as you said, in some roles, that is just not going to fly, no matter how diplomatically brilliantly you, you engage in that discussion. Exactly. Okay, cool. Well, so then you've got some goals in mind. You've got some clear sort of self-knowledge, and and then you're entering into the conversation. Uh, what are some maybe particular, you know, do's and don'ts to think about as you are, are, are having conversations? You've got a relationship with a recruiter and you are sort of having some back and forth. Are there some things that people do that just are delightful to search consultants and yeah. just dreadful? Like, oh my gosh, I hate it when people do this. Well, so I'm going to talk from the perspective of a search consultant. So probably a little bit, um, you know, a little bit uh, later in your career, although these apply to any any level. The first part of it is really to engage in a conversation. Um, you mentioned LinkedIn and then the reality is, as most of our uh, sourcing, most of the the way we find candidate is in LinkedIn. Most of it is ne- um, our network, our, the network of consultants of the firm, and also a lot of executives that we know. And we ask them, hey, who do you know? And, and how, you know, we, I have this particularly challenge. How would you tackle it? What kind of person do you think you could tackle it? Do you know anybody? And so one of the things when you get into these conversations is to think about you know, first of all, is this something that I am qualified for, interested? That obviously is, is the first question. And then if, if the answer is, is no to either of those questions, how can I help the person? What do I know about the industry? How can I help maybe with a contact, with an idea, where a place I would look? Because that's really important. The other thing that's really important is, is uh, as a lot of management consulting um, happens, is this is, we're not alone. So although I... <laughs> I don't do a lot of the work. The work is done by senior associates and research associates, all these awesome people who reach out to folks and who are often the first way, the first uh, entry point. And so make sure that uh, you, you network with these people, that you are very kind and nice and take their call and return their call. So that's really important. Another point that also is also something that we we talk about, and there's a lot of different point of view is, is salary. You know, do you uh, answer when somebody asks you uh, how much do you make? Yeah, let's hear that. That's a that's a big one, and there's certainly a lot of different points. You know, salary is 
It has changed a lot. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, your salary, you know, your, your, the salary you got from your job often was, you know, your only source of revenue. And, and that kind of dictated where you were on the ladder of life. Today, you have people that have side jobs and they create apps and they have this and they have that. So salary becomes one of the way that you create wealth. And so I think that as a lot of things in these days, transparency becomes more and more that you should find a way to figure out, to test, you know, how much do I make and how much does this job pay and benchmark where you're at and and think about it that way. So it really is a, a matter of personal preference and where you're at. But obviously when you are in search and you call someone and you want to know, you know, are we in the right ballpark? Does this make sense? Could we create an opportunity that would be compelling for this person? So when people are super cagey, it, it's not, it's not the best and they don't have to tell us they, but they have to tell us what they want. And that's the problem. The reason we ask for salary is people don't know what they want. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's like going to a store and say, I want this. How much is this? Well, I'm not going to tell you how much it is. It's like, okay. <laughs> so it just doesn't work. So either you say what it, what you make, if, if it's actually um, allowed, because certain, um, certain U.S. state now uh, prohibits it, or you say, you know what, this is what I'm looking for. This is the range what I'm looking for. And you have to have the confidence to say it. So I've, I've heard that tip shared and it resonated with me when, when asked the question, what are you currently being paid? The appropriate answer is I am targeting a range between X and Y. So it's a, it's a little bit of a dodge, but I think it still accomplishes the goal you spoke of is I need to know what works for you. Absolutely. And you need to know, you know, how do you relate? And these, when you have these conversations, it's a good time to ask, Hey, I'm at this point. Does it make sense? What do you see? Not obviously with everybody who calls, but when you've established that relationship, when you have that, this person you've spoke to two or three times and you've met them, you can ask. I mean, it doesn't change anything. At the end of the day, whatever offer you get, you can say no. But the problem is people think that, you know, that whatever's put in front of them, they just have to take it. I think that is, that's very wise. And I want to dig a little bit more into, you said people don't really know what they want. Could you be a little bit more specific in terms of maybe precise questions within that realm of what do you want that you often see people just don't have answers to? Well, I think a lot of people, they, they start in a career, they get paid a certain amount and they don't talk about it at all. And so they have no idea whether or not they're fairly paid for what they do. So it's about knowing, uh, getting a little bit more information, getting, educating yourself to know, okay, so what does an average role pay? And sometimes getting a five, 10,000 raise is not worth changing the job, but sometimes having that information helps you think about or give you the confidence the next time you're in front of your boss and you need to negotiate that raise no, you know, what is it that you're worth out there? What are similar job paying? And it doesn't mean you're going to leave, but it means that you have at least that information. Oh, that's good. And, and I'd like for you to speak a little more to that with, you say, sometimes a five or 10K bump is not sufficient to to exit. And I can think of many such reasons why that's the case. Could, could you elaborate on, on some of the biggies? Well, so especially when you're earlier in your career, this isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. So you need to think about what is it that you want to develop? Where do you want to go? And what is the best environment to develop that? 
And is it worth $10,000 if you just leave what you have and go? Sometimes you're not in the right environment and you need to leave and and you're not going to reach your goals where you are. But saying that just money is enough to motivate a move is rarely the right decision. You know, it needs to be a package. So getting back to your question, you have a, a support environment in your role where they are coaching you to find, to get to the next level. The, you have, um, you're an industry that you're passionate about and you've worked many years to develop, let's say a clientele, and it's just starting to work out for you. You know, that, that would be too bad to let that aside to go to something else. So there's a lot of reasons, but typically people know you get that good feeling on whether or not you're doing it for really the holistic value of changing, or really, if it's just that the appeal of a, a little extra cash. Okay. Uh, understood. Well, and I'd also like to get your take when it comes to, you said we're looking at keywords and does it seem to have a fit based upon, you know, distinctive experience? I also want to hear from you in terms of, are there some things associated with, with attitude or demeanor or, or some sort of other universal things? Like regardless of I am trying to find someone in marketing or finance or if it's in airlines or high tech, everybody loves a candidate who blank. Could you fill in some of those blanks? So the number one attribute I would say is somebody who's agile. And, and agility is about the ability to take everything you've learned in the past and kind of rearrange it to deal with a new situation. The reality is the world is unpredictable. Nobody knows what's going to happen. There are shocks every day. And so you can't be prepared for everything that is going to come in front of you. But you can be prepared in, in, in developing a lot of different skills and having that ability to put them together to face whatever situations in front of you. So that's definitely one. The other one that's very popular and and for good reason is authenticity. So the ability to really embrace who you are and who people are and, and find your real strength and knowing what you're good at and what you're not so good at. And that has, you know, has a lot of different you can a lot of different flavors. You can call it self-awareness, but that's really important, knowing what it is that you can do and, and being upfront and honest about it. And I can see how the authenticity piece, you can kind of get a quick gauge if you're talking to someone, if they sort of seem to say that they're great at everything. It's like, maybe, maybe not, uh, but we're not maybe getting the whole story or the full truth in terms of, of seeing that, that self-awareness or that authenticity. I'm wondering, from your vantage point, how do you get a read on if someone seems agile? Well, so that's a good question. I think it's when you, when you speak to somebody and they talk about their background, there is a lot of creativity and how people approach problems and create solutions. And they always, they're always on the lookout for something new, something different. They're not afraid of trying different things. And they're not afraid at changing industries or changing roles, or they see more of the positive than the potential challenge. So that typically when somebody's very agile, now there's a a scientific measure to from it, you know, we could certainly, we measure it as each time we do interviews and we, um, we meet with candidates, certainly something that we measure, 
But on a high level, it really is that ability to be creative on how you tackle problems. Well, uh, you got me so intrigued now. Scientifically measuring this agility, I know Corn Theory has some some tools, instruments, assessments uh, along those lines. But from a mere conversation, you're you're getting a, a gauge and, and taking that into a number. How how does that work? To the extent that you're not disclosing super proprietary things here. No, so so to get into levels and numbers, I mean those are very complex assessments that are, are done. And, and so we certainly don't do it by just a conversation. But I mean, you get a feeling, I think it's the feeling of, you know, when you think about those uh, um, contests on around the world, and you're a team of two, and you have these challenges that you're not too sure about, I think it's amazing race. Well, who would you like to be on with amazing race? Who would you feel that, you know, whatever's thrown at you, you will kind of manage it through. And it's that feeling that we tend to look into in candidates, you know, somebody who you would feel very safe, in whatever situation, you, you know, they'll figure it out. And so there isn't enough, we don't come out of an interview with a number. I'll tell you that much. It's more of an impression. That is a nice image there with the amazing race piece. And, and it, well, I guess now I'm thinking about in the consulting case interviews in terms of we, we say, okay, well, we, we've thrown several business scenarios at you where you're able to, to crack them sort of again and again. And so I'd be curious to hear in terms of not to go too deep into interviewing, but when it comes to sort of questions posed, are you seeing any kind of mistakes happening again and again that candidates can just easily avoid? Yes, definitely. So the biggest mistake that people tend to do is they are not prepared and um, they haven't really been thoughtful about, once again, what is their value proposition? What are those great examples in their career that really showcase who they are and what they can do? And so what that creates is that when you're in an interview, somebody will often spend too much time explaining the contest and then the context, and then they get in the weeds and there's too many details and they forget that this isn't about, you know, the price of oil in 2012. This is about what did you do about it? So if you think about a minute, let's say, or two minutes to answer a question, you don't want to spend a minute and a half talking about context. You know, you want to give it quick have that elevator speech of, you know, this is what happened. This is the gist of it. And now I'm going to tell you what I did about it and why I was amazing in this situation, why you want to hire me. But most people haven't practiced it. And that really shows in an interview. Okay. Well, I also want to get your take here. You've recruited at uh, multiple different levels of, of seniority for clients. Can you share some perspective in terms of what do you see those who are are rising, they're flourishing and seeing a really cool career progression. What sorts of, I don't know, knowledge, skills, abilities do they seem to come up again and again? We mentioned the authenticity and the agility. Is there anything else in terms of, of themes you're spotting? Definitely the ability to learn and also the confidence of knowing, of being able to come out and and meet with us and have the conversation and take the information and really have that level of, um, of gravitas that we look for. Um, so gravitas is something that's really tough to define. It's really, I mean, it's tough to define yet. It's so easy when you see it. And I think that one of the way that you develop that is often by being surrounded by people who have great executive presence. But executive presence really is when you meet someone and they have a good background and they know how to 
you know, conduct a conversation and you feel, you know, you feel like this person can handle a lot of challenges. That's certainly something that's very, uh, that we look for. Okay. Beautiful. Well, tell me, Julie, anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Well, I think it's it's really going back to the, trying to develop the best that you can be. Many years ago, developing your career was about being the best. So if there were five vice presidents or five directors or five managers, you wanted to be the best manager to get the promotion to director and then the best director. Now things have changed. You know, people come and go. There aren't no uh, long-term careers anymore. So you need to make sure that you work on yourself to be a director. Whether or not it's a director in your company, whether or not you get your boss's job, all you need to do is make sure that you are director level. And if that position is not there, then you'll get another position. And I think that really is a shift in mindset where you need to work collaboratively with your colleagues. You need to make sure that everybody gets to be the best they can be. And at the end of the day, everybody's going to win by doing so. Oh, that is a a nice final note there. Now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, one of my favorite quotes is actually by a great Montrealer who uh, died last year, Leonard Cohen. And uh, he sang in one of his songs a verse that says, there is a crack in everything. That is how the light gets in. And I think that Leonard Cohen wasn't somebody who spent a lot of time explaining how he came up or what anything meant. So it's open to interpretation. But to me, it really means that there's nothing you can't crack. There is really an opportunity everywhere. And that once you find that little piece of light, that's when, you know, everything gets better. So it's the continuous pursuit of through imperfection that you get perfection. Oh, excellent. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or bit of research? Well, study, I would say at Corn Ferry, as you mentioned, we have a ton of research. We have lots of uh, information on executives that are successful and what makes them successful. So we've been looking at studies on on what makes great chief marketing officers and and what distinguish customer centric leaders, and so we're in a lot of uh, of that uh, that analysis right now. So certainly, if your listeners go on our on our website shortly, you'll have all those uh, findings. Oh, oh, so it's in process as we speak. It's in process, definitely. Oh, cool. All right. And how about a favorite book? Well, I ha- I read so much for my job that I don't uh, I don't say I have a favorite book recently, but what I'm going to suggest is a favorite podcast. I assume everybody listens to podcasts. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's actually an HBR limited series called Women at Work. It is a six episode that they ran about I'd say six months ago, and it. Um, it's a conversation between Amy Bernstein, who's the editor, Sarah Green Carmichael, executive editor, and Nicole Torres, a younger associate editor. And it talks about issues that women face, but it is done in such a pragmatic way and away from the um, conciliation work and family that, you know, basically a lot of us are sick of hearing about, but really goes into really more interesting and, and, and useful subjects. So I definitely recommend uh, listening to those. All right. And how about a favorite tool? So a favorite tool, I would say, so I bought this nifty little whiteboard peel-off that I stuck on my desk and tons of dry erase pens. And every morning I do my to-do list. And then I have the pleasure of just wiping it off (laughs) as it goes through. And um, 
I, it just, it's great. At the end of the day, when you take that eraser and you just, you know, wipe it clean, you have a feeling of accomplishment. So, hey, you, t- you take what you can, right? <laughs> oh, I like that. Well, you know, I think that uh, Caroline Webb of, of How to Have a Good Day and a previous episode really kind of emphasized that in terms of when you are getting the the pleasure of checking something off, maximize it. If it's digital, it should have like a big swoosh or a woink noise or a gray strike through or a disappearing animation. And if it's paper, it should be a big, thick line through it. And you've taken it farther with the erasing. That's cool. So you say uh, a peel off. What exactly does that mean? Well, it's, um, it's, so it's whiteboard material, but it looks like a, like a big sticker. So it's the size of a, uh, of a, you know, a piece of a sheet of a sheet of paper and you just stick it on your desk. So there's no way I've, I, I tried the notebooks, but then the notebooks, you know, you forget papers, you have too many of it. This is just in your face. So if you uh, decide not to strike something off your to-do list, then it's on you. <laughs> Understood. It is, it is actually stick to the desk or it does. Can, okay. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's removable. So there's All any right. furniture lovers out there, it's not going to damage it. But it's like 10, 10 bucks. It's actually really cheap on any place they sell st- stationery. Mm-hmm. And it's held up. You know, one one peel-off is, has stood the test of time. It does, definitely. Cool. Definitely. All right. <laughs> and how about a favorite habit? The favorite habit, I'd say, is going paperless. So I have uh, my iPad and Apple Pencil, which I absolutely adore because I can't get into the habit of typing everything. I still love to write. And uh, and going paperless is something that's really great for me. It allows me to carry all my notes everywhere. It keeps them confidential. And I think that's really uh, something that uh, takes a little bit of use, getting used to, but now it makes for a much cleaner desk. And can you write with uh, Apple Pencil and an iPad as fast as you can with a normal pencil and paper? Absolutely. It's even better, though, because you can download some documents and then just mark on them. So it's great when you have resumes and, and you want to uh, to keep that for posterity. Okay. Yeah, that works. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I would certainly point them to connect with me on LinkedIn. So I love, uh, you know, building my LinkedIn profile with uh, great people. Also, Corn Ferry, our website. Corn Ferry is coming out with great tools for even people at all level of, uh, of career, all career levels. So it's certainly worth it to go and have a peek. It's called Corn Ferry Advanced. So that certainly is a great tool that's coming out. And, uh, and that's it. And watch out for Corn Ferry Institute, where we have tons of a great research paper that's backed from our, our experience, both on, on the research side, but also the pragmatic part of being in search and seeing talent every day. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yes. Make sure you're visible. Be out there. Network. Even if you're super happy in your job and you think this is the best in the world and you couldn't be better, you never know what changes and you never know what's out there. So be confident. Know what you, you know, what you're worth and what you can do and where you can go and make sure that you can test that regularly on the market. Perfect. Well, Julie, thank you so much for for sharing this. I think that many folks have finally had this question demystified. So very much appreciated and and keep doing the great work you're doing. Excellent. Thank you so much. I really appreciated Julie's wisdom there. And I really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. I really appreciate Julie's take that the career conversation is ongoing and you're always kind of keeping an eye open, not in a brutal mercenary fashion, but just be aware 
in terms of how you're feeling, how things are going, if it might be appropriate to look at a different opportunity and to always be visible and, and ready to to think about that and, and jump should an amazing opportunity strike. So again, you can check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items that we've referenced over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F296. I hope you'll push subscribe. If you haven't already, you'll hear from our next guest. It is Michael Bungay-Stanier. He's back for a part two. It's been a while and his book, The Coaching Habit, has been just taken off in terms of a thousand five-star Amazon reviews and he shares a little bit more in terms of what does it take to really have effective coaching conversations with people? What are some of the holdups? How do you overcome those? It's a good time. He is just a lot of fun. Until next time, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.